Negotiators at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai agreed to transition away from fossil fuels but give no details on the timeline or the cost. It's Wednesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the House will vote today to formalize a Republican impeachment inquiry into President Biden over alleged family business deals. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson. It's not a political calculation. We're following the law, and we, and we are the rule of law team, and I'm going to hold to that. That's my commitment. Also, President Biden tries to advise Israel on how to treat Gaza after the fighting there stops. And this hour? You've got this concentration of winners. You know, within the S&P 500, there's seven of them. They're looking pretty magnificent. The tech companies helping push the stock market and the concerns over the market's dependence on them. Celtics win, increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Delegates to the World Climate Summit in Dubai have decided on their written agreement. It says the world must transition away from the use of fossil fuels. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry lauded the agreement. The decision, supported by all nations of the world, calls for transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems so as to achieve net zero by 2050. Some countries did not like the final language in the agreement. Their delegates say the wording does not go far enough to address climate change. President Biden has given his sharpest criticism yet of Israel's bombing of Gaza. Thousands of Palestinians have been killed. Many countries have demanded that Israel observe a ceasefire. Speaking at a fundraiser yesterday, Biden said Israel was starting to lose the world's support. He cited Israel's indiscriminate bombing in Gaza. Biden is also supposed to meet today with the families of several Americans believed held hostage by Hamas. A new poll shows a matchup between President Biden and former President Donald Trump for the White House next year would be extremely close. And Piers Domenico Montanaro reports that's according to the latest findings from NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and Marist. The country's sharply divided along party lines on all kinds of issues, and the NPR poll makes that clear for Biden and Trump. Asked who they would vote for if the 2024 presidential election took place today, survey respondents split down the middle. Biden gets 49 percent, Trump 48, a statistical tie when the margin of error is almost four percentage points. Trump and Biden are almost equally disliked as well, with 53 percent saying they have an unfavorable opinion of Biden, but 56 percent saying they have a negative view of Trump. The poll runs counter to the idea that Trump has gained the upper hand in the presidential election. If anything, the survey shows how much can change and how close a rematch between the two would likely be. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Investors are betting the Federal Reserve will hold interest rates steady when policymakers wrap up a two-day meeting this afternoon in Washington. NPR Scott Horsley reports inflation has eased in recent months, although it is still above the Fed's 2 percent target. The central bank has been careful not to declare victory over inflation prematurely. While price hikes have moderated since hitting a four-decade high last year, the cost of living is still climbing faster than the central bank would like. Consumer prices in November were up 3.1 percent from a year ago, stripping out volatile food and energy prices. The so-called core inflation rate last month was 4 percent. Beginning last year, the Fed raised interest rates aggressively in an effort to tamp down demand and bring prices under control. Rates have held steady at a high level since July, and that's not expected to change today. Investors will be listening closely, though, for any signal about possible rate cuts next year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, Dow futures are up nearly 50 points. This is NPR. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Boston City Council plans to vote today on whether to fund a new contract with the city's largest police union. It took over a year and a half to reach an agreement on the $82 million contract with the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association. It includes reforms around police details and arbitration. Some counselors are worried about language in the contract that allows officers to challenge being fired for certain serious crimes. The city council has to approve funding for the contract for it to go into effect. Enrollment in the state's public colleges and universities is up for the first time in nearly a decade. State data show enrollment in the system jumped nearly 3 percent in 2023 as being driven by more people enrolling in community colleges. Governor Healy says the news shows her efforts to use state dollars to offset college costs for some students is working. Whales across the world are suffering because of a loss of habitat, a relocation of prey, and other consequences of climate change. That's the takeaway from a new report from the Plymouth-based advocacy group Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Executive Director Regina Esmuda-Silva says a familiar local species, North Atlantic right whales, are a case study in the report. They're moving to different places, and that's actually putting them at significant risk from human impacts because they're moving into places that didn't have any management measures. The group is calling for efforts to re-whale the ocean. That means implementing better conservation measures that will allow population numbers to rebound. Another New England state is legalizing online sports betting. Vermont officials yesterday announced it'll be legal in that state beginning next month. As Liam Elder Connors reports, three sports betting companies can now start marketing and pre-registering people in Vermont. DraftKings, FanDuel, and Fanatics Sportsbook can begin operating in Vermont on January 11th, just in time for the NFL playoffs. The state expects to get up to $7 million in revenue during the first year. Some of that money will go towards treating gambling addiction. Liquor and Lottery Commissioner Wendy Knight says each gambling company will give about 30 percent of their revenue to the state. Frankly, I am thrilled with the revenue share that we were able to secure with the operators. It's much higher than it would have been in a tax rate, a 7 percent or a 10 percent tax rate. Governor Phil Scott signed a bill legalizing sports betting in June. The new law allows up to six companies to operate in the state. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. The Celtics rallied from an early deficit against the Cleveland Cavaliers last night. Boston won the game 120-113 to at the Garden. The Seas and Cavs will play again tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the New Jersey Devils. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the lower 40s. Clearing skies overnight with a low in the 20s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-30s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The majority of the U.N.'s member states, 153 out of 193, voted for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas during Tuesday's emergency session of the United Nations General Assembly. UNGA President Dennis Francis pleaded with the delegates to support the resolution. 
in the name of humanity, I ask you all once again, stop this violence now. The resolution was adopted, but it is non-binding, and the U.S. voted against it. Last week, a binding resolution for a ceasefire failed in the Security Council when the U.S. acting alone vetoed it. Yesterday, President Biden said Israel risks losing international support over the way it is conducting its military campaign in Gaza. But that invites the question if the U.S.'s unwavering support for Israel is isolating the U.S. We wanted to consider that and what the implications of that might be for future peace efforts in the region. We called Fawad Zhirjas for this. He is a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. So talk about that. I mean, we've put the question to you. How is the U.S. being viewed in this moment, not just within Gaza, but among U.S. allies in the Islamic world? Well, if you ask me really to summarize uh, the situation, it would be the U.S. Uh, versus the world. Uh, the U.S. against the world. 154 nations voted for a ceasefire. Only 10 nations voted against it, including the United States. I don't think really that President Biden and his operators in the White House and the State Department and the Defense Departments appreciate the political and strategic and moral damage that they inflict on U.S. foreign policy. I think throughout the region, uh, in the Middle East, and in the global South, uh, uh, beyond the Middle East. I think they view the U.S. as not only complicit in the war itself in Gaza, but as a direct participant. They say people, I mean, this is, you ask anyone in the Middle East, and they say American bombs, American missiles, American money, American drones over Gaza, American political backing, American uh, vetoes, Mm -hmm. more than any other president in U.S. history, more than any other president in U.S. modern history, President Biden is seen as actively supporting Israel's ethnic cleansing in Gaza on such a vast scale. So, so let me ask you this. I mean, publicly, Arab leaders have expressed outrage about the death toll in Gaza, about Israel and the U.S.'s unwillingness to support a ceasefire. But it's clear that many Arab nations, such as Egypt, for example, don't want Hamas to remain in power. Is there a difference between what those leaders are saying publicly and what they're saying in private negotiations? Look, uh, there is a, an, an Arab delegation you know, there was a, an Arab League meeting and an Islamic uh, uh, meeting, and they sent a delegation to the United States and China and Russia and the UK and France were the members of the Security Councils. Arab nations have been urging the United States to vote for a ceasefire because Arab nations know very much the implications of what's happening in Gaza on their own security and stability. I have never seen the region as implosive, as boiling, there is so much rage and anger, not only against Israel, but against the United States and, 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 and pro-U.S. Uh, regimes fear that Gaza could really implode their own security and stability. I'd like to keep going with this, if that's possible. Um, uh, uh, Professor, so what do you think the implications of this are? And let's looking, looking beyond the immediate conflict, which is difficult to do in the current moment. There are lots of questions about well, look, who will govern Gaza after the war. The U.S. officials say they envision Gaza and the West Bank being overseen by unified government. Is that realistic, what you're telling, given what you're telling us now? Look, what's happening now is that Israel is breaking Gaza. Israel will own Gaza. Gaza will most likely 
haunt Israel and the United States for years to come. In the same way that Iraq and Afghanistan haunted American uh, foreign policy for many years to come. Everyone is talking about the day after. But let's, let's look, uh, Michelle, about what's happening. 20,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, civilians. 18,000 plus 10,000 missing. 50,000 Palestinians have been injured. 1.9 million Palestinians, 1.9 million Palestinians, 85% of Palestinian populations have been displaced. Gaza itself now is unlivable, uninhabitable. Uh, so the, everyone is talking about, I mean, the day after, while the entire world is talking about really the fear of mass displacement, the fear of genocide, the fear of, of ethnic cleansing. And that's what the United States doesn't get. You have to stop the killing. You have to really basically prevent a catastrophe, not only in Gaza, but also this catastrophe could easily implode the pro-U.S. Uh, 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 regional order and have major implications for U.S. Okay. foreign policy, in particular, I, if the war continues. I understand what you're saying, Professor, but, when I, but I, my, my question to you is that there are things that these countries could do if they weren't to express their opposition more forcefully, they could stop buying U.S. weapons, they could raise oil prices, they could tell the U.S. to get troops out of their countries. They haven't done any of those things. So what does Absolutely. that suggest? What does that suggest, though? Does what, it suggest what, that there's a difference between what the leadership, forgive me, what the leadership beholden, believes and what the street believes? They're beholden to American foreign policy. They're, depending, they're dependent on American security umbrella. They don't really have the guts to really challenge, challenge American foreign policy. Uh, but what's happening also, we need to take into account that the United States is humiliating, insulting its Arab allies in the region. Whether you're talking about the Egyptians, the Jordanians, I cannot tell you what Arab officials say in private. They're terrified that what's really happening in Gaza will not remain in Gaza. And they basically say that the United States doesn't care, does not listen mm -hmm. to them. I mean, the United States not only doesn't care about its Arab allies, it doesn't care about the world. And You're talking about 154 nations. I mean, United Nations humanitarian officials have been bagging the United States. They're talking about a catastrophe, one of the greatest humanitarian okay. catastrophes in modern times. And, okay, we don't have time to sort of continue this further. What would you recommend that the United States do at this point? You know, I forgive well, me, you only have 30 seconds. Michelle, now in the short term, a ceasefire. The killing must stop. In the midterm and the short term, the United States will stop talking about a two-state solution and recognize Palestine as a state and accept Palestine as a member of the United Nations. Let's not really pay okay. lip service to the idea of two-state two solution. Let's okay. really activate stop. this particular idea. We have to stop it there for now. For a while, Georges is a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's the author of a number of books about the Middle East. Professor, thank you for sharing these insights with us. House Republicans have spent months on a presidential impeachment investigation. They found no direct evidence of wrongdoing by the president. But that doesn't match the picture painted in conservative media. And now the House prepares to move forward with an impeachment inquiry. Lawmakers say it's about corruption and political influence peddling. House Speaker Mike Johnson told reporters yesterday that this is the only way forward. We've come to this impasse where following the facts where they lead, is hitting a stone wall because the White House is impeding that investigation now. They're not allowing witnesses to come forward and thousands of pages of documents. So we have no choice 
NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is with us here in Studio 31 in Washington, D.C. Eric, good morning. Hey, Steve. Why are Republicans voting now? Good question. After all, like you guys mentioned, they've been investigating for months. Johnson says this is about legal leverage. Republicans want records. The president hasn't turned over. The White House has cited a lack of a formal vote on an impeachment inquiry. And Republicans want to talk to some people who've been ignoring them. Hmm. But Johnson is also under tremendous political pressure to moving ahead on impeachment from hardliners, by which I mean the most ideological, often anti-compromise set of Republicans. And since Johnson's been unable to do the other seemingly impossible thing that those folks want, namely uniting Republicans behind huge spending cuts with socially conservative policy writers, this is a way to maybe secure a win and impugn Biden at a time when the face of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, faces criminal charges across the country in connection to, among other things, attempting to subvert the results of the 2020 presidential election. Okay, so so he can't deliver other things. He can perhaps deliver an impeachment inquiry, but what do Republicans at least allege the president did? So let me say again, there is no direct evidence that implicates President Biden in any wrongdoing. But the substance of the allegation is that late into Biden's tenure as vice president and after he left office, his son Hunter, who did give up a lucrative lobbying career when his dad became vice president, was served on the board of directors for a Ukrainian oligarch's energy company, helped a Chinese energy company, both for million dollar plus payouts. Republicans say the younger Biden appears to have been selling influence or the appearance of influence and allege so far, again, without direct evidence, that Biden was somehow involved. How is the White House responding? Well, they categorically deny any allegation that Joe Biden did anything illegal or even improper. They say GOP investigators have access to tens of thousands of pages of financial records, thousands of pages of reports from the Treasury Department, dozens of hours of witness interviews, as well as material from the FBI, DOJ, and National Archives. Republicans, though, are frustrated they haven't gotten everything they asked for. I just want to note a number of Republicans in different ways have acknowledged, you know, we don't actually have any direct evidence against the president. And now comes this impeachment vote, and Republicans can only lose a handful of votes if they're going to prevail. Can they prevail? Maybe, maybe not. As far as I can tell, there's only one public no vote. That's Ken Buck of Colorado. And Republicans have a three-seat majority if everyone shows up to vote. So this is going to be a tough ask for folks who are in really competitive seats. The context, though, is that this is a vote on the inquiry, not a vote to actually impeach the president. And that might give folks a way to say, look, there's enough suspicious activity here to keep digging. And that's why I voted to support the investigation. In any case, this investigation, I guess, would continue into the election year of 2024. Right. So they've already been investigating for months. They're supposed to continue today. As a matter of fact, the president's son, Hunter Biden, is scheduled to appear for a closed-door deposition. But the younger Biden says he only wants to testify publicly, and I don't expect that he'll show up. My understanding is that Republicans will attempt to move ahead with an actual Articles of Impeachment vote in January, which is also, I should say, when they attempt to keep the government funded. Okay. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a group of tech stocks called the Magnificent Seven have driven huge gains and made it a good year for the stock market, but there are concerns about the market's dependence on them. It's 719. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Ocean State Job Lot. Committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times, and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. A few communities in Massachusetts are considering overdose prevention centers even though they are illegal. Friends and families are already monitoring drug use in secret to keep loved ones alive. We'll take you to one such home today on Radio Boston. Listen at 11 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have a high in the low 40s along with some gusty winds. Mostly clear in mid-20s tonight, then sunny tomorrow with highs in the mid-30s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotics a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Cy Sims Foundation, Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The wait is over for fans of Chicken Run. More than two decades after its release, the studio that is also behind Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep has a sequel, Chicken Run. Dawn of the Nugget. And this one features, yeah, I'll say it, even more foul play, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair tells us. If you're not familiar with the first one, Chicken Run was a spoof of the 1963 movie The Great Escape. In that movie, prisoners plan a mass breakout from a Nazi war camp. In Chicken Run, they hatch a similar plot to escape being made into pies. Mac and I have come up with a brand new plan. Show them, Mac. Right. We tried going under the wire, and that didn't work. So, the plan is, we go over it. I probably watched it about five times. 11-year-old Adia Kampstra from Stratford, Wisconsin, has 21 pet chickens and is the editor of Chicken Feed News. She says she likes that the chickens in the first movie beat the odds. Even though they have, like, the worst circumstances, like, they'll still figure out a way to do anything. Listen, we'll either die free chickens or die trying. Are those the only choices? Aaron Steinke from Portland, Oregon, says Chicken Run was the first DVD he ever bought. He says he loves how Aardman makes clay figures come to life. It has a real tactile, handmade approach, and you can feel it. He also really liked that the heroes of Chicken Run are female. You might not even remember that this is actually, like, about women's collective power. <laughs> like, maybe you could even, like, parallel it to unionized workforce in the modern age. Think, everyone, think. What haven't we tried yet? We haven't tried not trying to escape. Mm, that might work. 
So why did it take Aardman so long to make a Chicken Run sequel? Sam Fell directed the new movie. We're just sort of slow filmmakers. You've heard of the slow food movement. Well, we're the slow film movement, I think. The team behind the first Chicken Run is now working on a new Wallace and Gromit movie. It's not a big studio, Aardman's, and they make really can only make one film at a time. And everything went into making Chicken Run. It was their first feature. This will take Tweedy's farm out of the Dark Ages and into full-scale automated production. And they didn't have any people working on the second one in the background, you know? Like, they just didn't have the idea. So when it came out and it was very popular, you know, the guys at DreamWorks said, well, where's the next one? And they were like, oh, well, we haven't really got one. Relax. We're making progress. But we are a little bit closer with this Wallace and Gromit movie, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and so they went on to that one. I'm in the mood for food! And that takes four years. Aardman started working on Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, eight years ago. Fell says the hard part was coming up with a new adventure after the first one ended so perfectly. One was this idea that this time they could be breaking in, like a heist movie, a kind of Chicken Impossible movie. And it's kind of comic, you know, because you haven't got Tom Cruise. You've got, like, Babs and Bunty, these chickens, are the most unlikely action heroes. Go! 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 <laughs> Another reference for the Chicken Run sequel is the movie The Truman Show, a satire of a kind of fake, made-for-TV happiness. The Chicken Factory is called Funland. It's all bright colors like a creepy Disneyland for chickens. Fell says at first they envisioned a prison with cages. And it was a bit just too grim, to be honest. And this notion that they would all be made happy inside by living in this beautiful, kind of happy, super colorful environment, which is deliberately unreal. Animation technology has evolved a lot since the first Chicken Run movie. There's some CGI in the new one, but mostly it's Aardman's trademark claymation. They made hundreds of chicken wings for the crowd scenes and hand-painted thousands of feathers. The English factory that made the clay they use recently went out of business. Alarming headlines read that Aardman was running out of clay. Fell says not true. They have enough for the next five years. It's a very, very slow threat. It's like an iceberg about 100 miles in the distance, you know. Don't worry, we're not going to crash into it. Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget premieres later this week on Netflix. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. The Library of Congress says it will preserve a couple of classic holiday films, including The Nightmare Before Christmas, one of this year's selections for the National Film Registry. NPR's Netta Ulabi has more. Every year, the Librarian of Congress picks 25 great movies to add to the registry. Among them, the Tim Burton animated film from 1993. Making Christmas. Making Christmas. Making Christmas. The registry was started in 1988. The movies included, now nearly 900, are meant to represent the breadth and depth of American film heritage. Some are important, but rather obscure. Others are, well, home alone. Heads up! Home Alone, billed as a family movie without the family, came out in time for the holidays in 1990. Since then, it's made nearly half a billion dollars. Other blockbusters in the registry this year include Terminator 2 Judgment Day and a Disney film from 1955. Open up your eyes. Open my eyes? To what a dog's life can really be. Lady and the Tramp is about two dogs in love. Look, there's a great big hunk of world down there with no fence around it. 
but two dogs can find adventure and excitement. But the National Film Registry this year also includes movies about justice and reform. A 1974 documentary called We're Alive recorded conversations between inmates at what was once the country's largest women's prison. You know, we're giving them DAs the publicity, we're giving the police and busters publicity, and we're giving the judges that send us here publicity. We're letting the big crooks run for office of governor. We're letting the big crooks run run for for president. president. There's also a collection of home movies shot over decades by a Filipino-American family. It documents their California community during a period of significant immigration. It's one of several films in the registry this year reflecting Asian-American experiences. Another is director Ang Lee's first big movie, The Wedding Banquet. Also being preserved for posterity, a 1975 movie called Cruisin' J-Town. It's about jazz musicians in Los Angeles' Little Tokyo neighborhood. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, President Biden has made what some see as his most critical comments yet about the Israeli government's actions in Gaza since the October 7th Hamas attacks. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores Black identity, community, and power closes December 31st. More at PEM.org. And the International Institute of New England, welcoming and supporting refugees and immigrants in the community for more than a century. IINE.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.N. General Assembly has approved a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. As Linda Fasula reports, more than 150 countries supported the resolution, while those opposed included Israel and the U.S. The resolution calls for a humanitarian ceasefire, all sides to comply with international law and protect civilians, and for an immediate and unconditional release of all hostages. The measure, however, does not condemn the October 7th attack on Israel by Hamas, which the U.S. pressed for but the General Assembly rejected. The U.S. opposes a ceasefire, saying it will only aid Hamas. The U.N. Climate Summit has wrapped up in Dubai, with negotiators agreeing the world needs to transition away from fossil fuels. Questions remain over how soon and how to pay for it. The former head of the European Council has been sworn in as Poland's new prime minister. NPR's Rob Schmitz is in Warsaw. After Poland's parliament delivered a vote of confidence for the cabinet of Donald Tusk last night, President Andrzej Duda officially swore in Tusk this morning as the country's newest prime minister. Tusk, a former president of the European Council who has served as Polish prime minister before, has vowed to repair relations with the European Union to help unfreeze more than $100 billion worth of funds that were blocked after their previous government violated the EU's democratic norms. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts needs more special education instructors. Now a new program at Merrimack College seeks to address that need by training paraprofessionals in Haverhill to become teachers. WBUR's Emily Piper-Villillo has more. The two-year program offers master's-level coursework online and in the evenings to work around paraprofessionals' daytime schedules. It also helps participants navigate the complicated teacher licensure process. Deborah Margolis is the dean of Merrimack School of Education. She says paraprofessionals' classroom experience and ties to the community make them good candidates for teacher positions. It's a much more diverse teacher population. They tend to live in town so that they're really committed to the school system. So far, 10 paraprofessionals are enrolled. Merrimack hopes to work with more school districts in the future to expand the tuition-free program. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper-Villillo. Plans to put a soccer stadium on the Mystic River in Everett are still in the works. That's despite the proposal being left out of the closeout state budget. State Senator Sal Domenico tells the Boston Herald he'll file a bill that allows construction on the site. Right now, it can only be used for marine industrial use. State data show emergency department visits due to COVID-19, influenza, and RSV are rising. Dr. Shira Darone is an epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. She told WBUR's Radio Boston that the pandemic-era rules should still apply when people are debating whether to visit vulnerable relatives. We really do need to get back to a place where it's not just about, well, I tested negative so I can go be with grandma even though... I have this terrible cold. We have to get back to those basics of you don't want to spread any of your germs to others. And when you have symptoms, you need to stay home and away from others. She also recommends people take two COVID tests 48 hours apart if they have any COVID symptoms to ensure they're negative. It's 733. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Celtics beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 120-113 to last night at the Garden. The same teams meet again tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will visit the New Jersey Devils. It'll slowly grow overcast today, and there will be some gusty winds. Highs will be in the low 40s. Skies will be mostly clear overnight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Sunny tomorrow with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. The stock market has had a heck of a year. The S&P 500, which tracks many of the world's biggest and best-known companies, is up more than 21 percent. But as NPR's David Gura reports, there are concerns because those gains, eye-popping as they are, are thanks to just a handful of stocks. Wall Street calls them the Magnificent Seven. The moniker comes from a Western of the same name, starring Yul Brynner and Steve McQueen, that premiered in 1960. The Magnificent Seven. 
I'm a big fan of the film. Michael Hartnett added the Magnificent Seven to Wall Street's lexicon. He's the chief investment strategist at Bank of America. You've got this concentration of winners, you know, within the S&P 500. There's seven of them. They're looking pretty magnificent because of their exposure to AI. These are companies we all know. There's Apple and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, along with Amazon, Microsoft, and Meta, the parent company of Facebook, plus Tesla and the microchip designer NVIDIA. Their share prices started to surge a few months after the debut of ChatGPT, which kicked off a wave of enthusiasm about artificial intelligence's potential. And Wall Street channeled its excitement into these seven companies, which are up around 70% this year. NVIDIA's stock alone is more than 230% higher. And CEO Jensen Huang told investors on NVIDIA's most recent earnings call that this is just the beginning. I think you're seeing just new developments uh, as the generative AI wave uh, propagates through every industry, every company, every region. But there is worry on Wall Street about how dependent the market has been on so few stocks. Bank of America's Michael Hartnett says there haven't been many alternatives. They were magnificent because everything else was tragic. The Federal Reserve hiked interest rates aggressively, and that was a drag on bank stocks and real estate. And because it's gotten more expensive to borrow money, investors have embraced companies that don't need to borrow to grow. The Magnificent Seven are sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars. But Hartnett says a stock market rally that is not broad-based can backfire. Narrow, concentrated markets are always vulnerable. Back in the 1990s, the stock market's gains were driven by another small basket of big tech companies. Wall Street nicknamed that group the Four Horsemen. You had Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, Dell that were, you know, four stocks that were doing all the heavy lifting of the market and you know how that turned out. Well, catastrophically. Gains that started with those stocks over the premise of the internet went on to fuel a frenzy. Investors bought stock in all kinds of speculative startups like Pets.com, and it all came crashing down in 2000. Eric Friedman is also thinking about that moment in history, the run-up to when the dot-com bubble burst. He's the chief investment officer in the asset management group at U.S. Bank. As someone who resided in San Francisco, California in March of 2000 and was working in the industry, I would say that this is not an environment that we think is a direct parallel, but we certainly could get to that point. According to Friedman, the Magnificent Seven are sturdier and their business models are more diversified. But he acknowledges the dangers of market gains tied to one story, in this case AI, gains that are fueled by just a handful of stocks. For this bull market to last, it has to broaden to include other companies in the S&P 500. Again, that index is up more than 21% this year. But if you take out the Magnificent Seven, it's up around 6%. David Gura, NPR News, New York. President Biden offered words of caution for Israel in its war against Hamas. Since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, Biden has strongly supported Israel's right to defend itself, especially publicly. That hasn't changed. But in some off-camera remarks, he said Israel is losing support over its, quote, indiscriminate bombing of Gaza. His comments reflected the divide between the U.S. and the Israeli governments over what should happen once the fighting in Gaza comes to an end. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is in our studios. Franco, good to see you. Good to see you, Steve. Thanks for coming by. So I'm trying to think about this. President Biden from the beginning has said, I support Israel, but listen, guys, be careful. Don't overreact. Don't be emotional. Now he's saying something 
Well, a little bit further along the same lines. What is he saying and why? Well, I mean, Steve, Biden is reiterating that Israel still has the right to go after Hamas, and he's emphasizing that. But he's also saying as long as it follows the rules of war and that they try to protect civilians. And he emphasized that the U.S. and Europe still have the support or are supporting Israel. But Biden said, quote, they're starting to lose that support by the indiscriminate bombing that takes place. And that's the end of the quote. Hmm. That's really interesting. So he's essentially saying you're doing the thing that I cautioned you not to do some weeks ago. Uh, I should say that you're reading these quotes from an official White House transcript. We're not going to hear the sound of the president's voice because it was not on cameras at a fundraiser. How is this different from what he said in more public settings? Well, I mean, he and his officials have been very careful not to give an evaluation of how the military campaign is going. They have said that the U.S. is telling Israel privately to protect innocent civilians. But Biden's description at that fundraiser as, quote, indiscriminate bomb is pretty blunt. And is there any chance this is what they would call a gaffe, that the president did not intend to go this far? I mean, no. I mean, this was not a throwaway line. He talked about this kind of in depth. I mean, he he not only talked about Bibi, he talked about other officials and basically said that this is he's dealing with the most conservative government in Israel's history. Oh, now, that's interesting when you say Bibi. Benjamin Netanyahu here, longtime friend of the president of the United States who's been involved in foreign policy for decades. But now Biden is saying to Netanyahu, you're being pushed too far by your right-wing government. And Netanyahu yesterday is saying he disagrees with the United States over the future. Who should be running Gaza once this war is stopped? What is the president saying about that? Well, Biden didn't address Netanyahu's statements directly, but he acknowledged that they are not on the same page right now. He said that Netanyahu has got a tough choice to make, and he's been pushing, Biden that is, for a revitalized Palestinian authority to take over and govern Gaza, as well as the West Bank. You know, he's long been an advocate for a two-state solution, and he says Netanyahu is in a bind because of the right flank of his government and that they oppose any type of role for the Palestinian authority in Gaza. And according to the transcript, Biden said, you cannot say there's no Palestinian state at all in the future. And that's really going to be the hard part for them. Which is something that Netanyahu and a lot of right-wingers have said, that they can't allow a full Palestinian state. Hasn't Biden even singled out Israel's national security minister by name in some of these remarks? Yes, he has. He says that the minister not only wants to go against Hamas, but wants retribution against all Palestinians. NPR's Franco Ordonez, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, the president of the American Council on Education discusses the rights and limits to free speech on college campuses amid heightened tensions over the Israel-Hamas war. Windy and low 40s today under increasingly cloudy skies. Tonight, those skies slowly clear and temperatures will be around the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny and mid-30s. It's 38 degrees in Boston.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. About 60 registered nurses in the greater Boston area could soon go on a two-week strike. The healthcare workers with the Visiting Nurses Association of Boston unanimously approved the strike this week. Those nurses are asking for pay and staffing increases. The union says both are needed to address a growing complexity of care for patients receiving treatment at home. A gene editing startup in Watertown is getting to work thanks to $213 million in new funding. Leaders at Tome Biosciences hope to develop technology to treat everything from rare to common diseases by inserting additional genetic information into a person's DNA. Tome has already used the funding to hire 140 employees at its Watertown labs. Regulators in Maine are considering a move to drastically limit the sale of new gas-powered vehicles. If approved, the rule would require more than 80 percent of vehicles sold in the state to be considered zero emissions by 2032. Advocates say it would help Maine meet its climate goals. Massachusetts and Vermont have also passed similar measures. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from the station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Comprehensive sex education can be a matter of faith. Some churches are stepping in to teach sex ed in states where it is not a required subject in the public schools. Jillian Taylor with State Impact Oklahoma takes us to Oklahoma City. All right, does anyone remember what we talked about last week? Nope. Oh, come on! I know someone does. Kaylin McKenzie Scoggins is trying to coax a group of 7th through ninth graders to recall what they've learned in their sex ed class at All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa. She says she's starting conversations that public schools here won't. I had a terrible education, and then I had kids, and I went, I don't want to do that, but I don't know what to do. And then I started... Oklahoma is one of 10 states that only mandates AIDS prevention instruction in schools. That leaves the rest up to school districts where levels of sex education vary. At least five churches in Oklahoma have stepped up to fill the gap. All Souls uses Our Whole Lives, or OWL, which is a national curriculum that can be used in secular and church settings. It provides age-appropriate lessons on topics like relationships, gender identity, sexual orientation, and health. All Souls parents attend a meeting before the course to find out what their kids will learn. Shannon Boston is a director of religious education at All Souls. She says the class centers around the church's values. To dwell together in peace, to be peaceful, to seek the truth in love, 
and to help one another. That's our basic covenant. One student who benefited from the sex ed classes at All Souls is Margot Starr. She grew up in the church. She became a leader among her peers at her public school because she has had sex education. No one else knew the reproductive organs or like the technical terms of any of these things. Like my friends would ask me questions, and especially like when we got into high school. Only 25 states mandate sex ed in public schools. Fewer states require teaching information on contraceptive methods and even fewer on consent and sexual orientation. That's according to the Guttmacher Institute, where Kimya Forazan keeps track of state policies on sex education. She says it's a patchwork across the country that deprives many of the knowledge they need to make informed decisions about sex. It's really vital that young people get the accurate information that they deserve. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Comprehensive sex ed is linked to reduced rates of teen pregnancy, sexual activity, and risky behaviors. Forazan says these rates are higher in states where an abstinence-only view of sex is emphasized, like in Oklahoma. That's what Jenny Briggs is seeing. She works with a group called Amplify Youth Collective in Tulsa. It advocates for access to sex ed in Oklahoma, which currently has one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the U.S., according to federal data. Briggs says it also has high rates of sexually transmitted infections. We know that Oklahoma is experiencing an STI crisis, and we see kind of a link there between the questions or the misconceptions young people have. While it's hard to track what individual schools in Oklahoma are teaching about sex ed, some young people find the church to be a reliable place to get the information they need. For NPR News, I'm Jillian Taylor in Oklahoma City. This is NPR News. It's a Wednesday morning on WBUR. Coming up at 820 on Morning Edition, medical facilities are supposed to be off limits as wartime targets. But that hasn't always been the case in Gaza and in other recent conflicts around the world. We'll look at the disturbing emerging pattern. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Kaiba, providing technology solutions to government agencies in the health and human services space. Kaiba, K-Y-Y-B-A dot com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. I'm Robin Young. When chef, author Clancy Miller first entered the food world, she knew very little about other black women who preceded her. Now in her For the Culture, she tells their stories. Lena Richard had a television show, a cooking show, more than a decade before Julia Child. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. President Biden plans to meet today with the families of American hostages held by Hamas. The COP28 climate summit in Dubai ended in a first-of-its-kind agreement for nations to transition away from fossil fuels. And the Federal Reserve is expected to hold interest rates steady during its meeting today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical about life's unexpected curves. Now playing amrep.org. It'll slowly grow overcast today and temperatures will rise to the low 40s, clearing overnight in the mid-20s, only in the mid-30s tomorrow, but it'll be sunny. It's 38 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Enskip. A Pacific Island nation is hoping the United States keeps up its end of a bargain. The Federated States of Micronesia want Congress to keep up payments as part of a long-term security arrangement. And that payment, like so much else, is delayed by the broader dysfunction in the House of Representatives. This week, we called Federated States President Wesley Simina, whose nation consists of about 600 islands, nearly all of them tiny. Is it fair to say there is far more water than land in the Federated States of Micronesia? Yeah, that's a very uh, fair statement. Yes, we can say, <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> we are mostly ocean. These Pacific islands are remote, yet attracted the interest of colonial powers for centuries. Spain once claimed them, and then Germany, and then Japan. And when Japan lost World War II, the United States took charge under a mandate from the United Nations. The Federated States eventually gained their independence, but signed what's called a Compact of Free Association with the U.S. We agreed that we will forego some of our powers, especially in the uh, defense and security aspects, to the United States in return for the United States to uh, assist us economically. Do you mean to say that the United States directs your defense and security matters? Yes, that's the reality of it. We gave the United States what we call a uh, perpetual right to have access to our islands through its uh, defense and military activities. And it can also deny third countries access and use of our territory. I think you're saying that if the United States needed a military base on one of your islands in its competition with China, for example, that the FSM would need to be open to that. And at the same time, if China came to you and said, we would like to set up a military base, the United States could veto that. Is that correct? That is basically correct, yes. Uh, We will allow U.S. access and use of our uh, territory or islands and oceans. But if a third country wanted to come in and use our islands uh, for military purpose or any other security or defense type of purpose, the United States can... uh, deny that on our behalf. So this agreement, the one that Congress is due to fund but is not yet, is part of the informal American empire in which the U.S. does not rule but does keep watch over its interests and keeps out other powers. Lately, that includes the great power on the far side of the Pacific. President Simina says China has come calling. We've been enjoying our relationship with China and our especially our relationship with the U.S. We can... Uh, understand the geopolitics that are going on, but our hope is to be a peacemaker, that we'll be someone who can also help diffuse things. And at the same time, I'm curious if China makes an effort to exert influence in your country. If you're talking about military uh, influence, no, they haven't done that. In fact, we have made it clear to them that we have a clear agreement with the United States which uh, governs our security and defense. But we have been very grateful to the PRC for their effort in assisting us in other economic and social development programs and projects. And they've been very forthcoming on those. 
If I visited your country, what is a project I might see that is Chinese-funded? Oh, you will see some uh, public administration buildings. You will see some roads, docks, bridges, you know, those kind of uh, projects that the U.S. uh, didn't uh, see fit to uh, finance. Mr. President, how much, if at all, do you worry about getting caught up in the conflicts of your part of the world? We are definitely worried, if you have to ask me. And that's because, you know, being a small uh, country uh, in the middle of this region where all this rivalry is going on, uh, we're worried that things can get out of uh, control. But at the same time, we're very thankful that we've seen uh, the leaders of those giants, uh, U.S. and China, getting together, meeting. We hope that those kind of dialogues will continue so that peace will uh, prevail uh, in our region. Mr. President, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity. Wesley Simina, President of the Federated States of Micronesia. He's hoping Congress eventually approves an increase in aid to his country under an agreement that gives the U.S. influence there. It's the time of year when many people give gifts to each other, and traditionally, they also give their time, usually to help people less fortunate. But volunteering is on the decline. And while you might think that's because of the pandemic, research shows that trend started even before. From the early 2010s to the mid-2010s, roughly, we started to see slight declines in the national volunteering rate every year. So that was the trend, and then COVID made it harder for organizations to find helping hands, according to Nathan Dietz at the University of Maryland's Do Good Institute. Some people might fall out of the habit of getting together and doing things in person with other people. And many organizations, in terms of volunteering, that's about the only type of volunteer opportunity they offer. That's something that James Coleman says he is seeing in Chicago. Almost to the point of it being non-existent, except primarily from church members that are supporting an organizational mission. Coleman is a pastor and the director of community wellness at the Westside Health Authority. COVID really took away a lot of engaging in general, right? let alone civic engagement. His organization helps small businesses grow and helps people to find jobs. And he says fewer volunteers says something about America at large. People are under pressure. They're seeking to survive for themselves. So the focus isn't on uplifting others. It's on day-to-day living. Professor Dietz at the Duguid Institute says people also need a reason to keep volunteering. I think if you give the volunteers a meaningful experience and uh, show them that the work that they're doing really is important to the organization, really does help meet the needs of people in the community. You know, give them a volunteer experience that is well-organized, well-conceived, well-designed, and well-managed, then people will want to come back. That's Pastor Coleman's experience in Chicago. As you give, it's an opportunity to grow, to receive gratification from helping other people, I've learned over the years as I've given to people that I've developed a a deeper gratitude for human life by seeing other people succeed in their life. And that's part of his sales pitch. You get something out of giving. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden plans to meet with families of hostages held by Hamas after saying that Israel is losing support because of its actions in Gaza. It's Wednesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, UN climate talks in Dubai have wrapped up with the first ever agreement for nations to transition away from fossil fuels. Critics, though, say it doesn't go far enough. Also this hour, for the first time in the U.S., Alabama will use nitrogen gas to execute a prisoner, but says it can't ensure the safety of witnesses. And we'll learn about an effort to ease Massachusetts' teacher shortage by making it easier for paraprofessionals to become licensed. They have experience. They know what special education looks like. They are already immersed in the culture of the school, culture of the community. Celtics win, increasing clouds in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Negotiators at the U.N. Climate Conference in Dubai say they've reached a final agreement. They claim it marks the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. But as NPR's Nathan Rott reports, not all of the nearly 200 countries present are happy with the outcome. Climate activists and representatives from some of the world's most vulnerable countries, those that have contributed the least to global warming, have been calling for this summit to result in a strong global commitment to ending the use of climate warming fossil fuels. Simon Steele, the executive secretary of U.N. Climate Change, acknowledged that was not fully accomplished after angry comments by the island nation of Samoa. The fact they received the longest standing applause is a clear indication these views are widely shared. Stronger ambition and follow through, he says, are needed to avert more human suffering. Nathan Rod, NPR News, Dubai. Ukrainian President Zelensky was back on Capitol Hill yesterday urging lawmakers to approve more money for his war against Russia. But NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports Republicans insist the aid must be paired with U.S. border security. President Zelensky met with senators from both parties and House Speaker Mike Johnson. GOP lawmakers say any new money must be tied to policy changes to address the significant uptick in migrants entering the U.S. illegally at the southwest border. Connecticut Democrat Chris Murphy is leading bipartisan talks on immigration reforms. He warns what's at stake if Congress doesn't approve the money for Ukraine. If we don't stand by Ukraine, we give a green light for Vladimir Putin to march into Ukraine and perhaps through into Europe. With both chambers scheduled to head home at the end of the week, it's unlikely the funding bill will pass before the end of the year. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. House Republicans are pushing for a vote as soon as today to open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. 
They say they're investigating alleged corruption but have never provided any direct evidence. Separately, the president's son, Hunter Biden, has been subpoenaed by a House panel and is scheduled to appear today behind closed doors. He has said he would only testify publicly. That has been rejected by Republican committee members. The Arizona Supreme Court is weighing contradictory laws on abortion. One law would ban the procedure after 15 weeks. Another law, dating back to the Civil War, would outlaw abortions entirely. Arizona Attorney General Chris Mays says that if that stringent law is upheld, she won't prioritize using it to prosecute Arizona doctors. I can't fathom a situation in which um, our Supreme Court wants to take us back to 1864, but we will see and we'll deal with that when it's when it's over. The law was adopted decades before Arizona became a state. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Enrollment in the state college and university system is up by nearly 3 percent this year. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, it's the biggest enrollment gain in nine years. The community college system is the driving force behind the increase, up 8 percent in 2023. Nate McKinnon, the executive director of the Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges, says the news is heartening after years of declined interest in higher education. The fact that you then fast forward a few years and community colleges are seeing a big increase shows that there is a right understanding that some post-secondary education is really important. Uh, And maybe it's not at the level of a bachelor's degree. State universities and the University of Massachusetts system both saw a roughly 1% decline. However, that decrease is smaller than previous years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The Boston City Council today plans to take up the new contract with the city's largest police union. Mayor Wu and the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association reached the five-year, $82 million contract earlier this month. Some counselors are worried about language in the contract that allows officers to challenge being fired for certain serious crimes. The contract needs to be approved by the city council before it can go into effect. UMass Lowell today announces a settlement agreement with a former baseball player who accused the team's coach of racist behavior. Cedric Rose filed a federal civil rights complaint over the behavior of longtime coach Ken Herring. Herring ended up resigning. Rose's attorney tells the Boston Globe the settlement deal will help protect players, train coaches on equity issues, and includes financial compensation. The National Guard got its start here in Massachusetts on this date 387 years ago. Retired Brigadier General Leonid Kondrachuk served as the U.S. National Guard's chief historian for 15 years. In Massachusetts, we have three regiments and a battalion that date back to December 13, 1636. When I tell people is these regiments are not only the oldest regiments in the U.S. Army, but among the oldest regiments in any army in the world. Later this morning, Governor Healy will swear in the head of the Massachusetts National Guard for another term. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. 
The Celtics topped the Cleveland Cavaliers last night at the Garden. The final was 120-113. to The same teams meet at the Garden again tomorrow. The Bruins are back in action tonight as they visit the New Jersey Devils. Increasing clouds today, it'll be in the lower 40s, clearing skies overnight with a low in the 20s, sunny tomorrow and in the mid-30s. It's 39 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career, with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Republicans are campaigning this year on lots of ideas. Some of them are in line with the opinions of most Americans, but others, well, are not. The latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll tested some of these policy prescriptions for hot-button issues, ranging from abortion rights and gender identity to foreign aid and the national debt. NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here with us to talk us through some of these findings. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, we're going to get through them all. All right, let's do it. All right. You know what? I want to start with abortion because this is an issue that has just really roiled politics since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Republicans have largely been on the losing end as conservative-led states, so-called red states, have been rolling out these more and more restrictive bans, which is, you know, one of them, the one in Texas, for example, has been very much in the news. So what did our poll find? Well, number one, banning abortion after six weeks just is not popular. Only 39% of people said that they agree with that. But a majority of Republican voters say that they do want that. And that's put a lot of Republican candidates running for president in a bit of a box. I mean, on the other hand, almost six in 10 Democrats in the poll say that they're in favor of abortion being legal up to 24 weeks or at any time during a pregnancy. Overall, only 37% though say that they agree with that. The reality here though is that Republicans are the ones in the hot seat on this issue because so many Republican-run states, like you said, are pushing restrictive bans. So, all right, let's go to gender identity and immigration. Those are two other things that we hear a lot about on the campaign trail. They, you know, they fire up the Republican base. Let's take those separately and let's start with the gender issue. What did our survey find there? Well, 6 and 10 say that whether someone is a man or a woman is determined by the sex they were assigned at birth. Overwhelming majorities of Republicans and independents say they believe this, but there's a huge split here because two-thirds of Democrats say gender is not necessarily determined by birth. So Republicans start with something of an advantage politically on this issue, but they can risk going too far. You know, when we polled about this over the summer, we found that most people don't want to completely close off access to gender transition-related health care. It's just a matter of what at what age that care should be made available. And what about immigration? Yeah, 54% say to finish the border wall, but there's a line for Republicans here too, because let's look at the issue of birthright citizenship, for example. Here's Ron DeSantis at a press conference in June at the southern border calling for an end to it. This idea that you can come across the border uh, two days later, have a child, and somehow that's an American citizen. That was not the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. But our poll found that most people disagree with him on that. Almost two-thirds in the poll say that they want birthright citizenship to continue, even for children of immigrants in the U.S. illegally. So let's go to government spending now. That's something that, you know, we tend to hear a lot about during debates and also lawmakers on the Hill. What do the polling say about how Americans say they want their tax dollars spent? 
Well, one big takeaway, Social Security is still a third rail in American politics. And we asked about how people would prefer to cut into the national debt, which is now approaching $34 trillion. 62% said that if they had to make a choice, they'd rather raise taxes and fees before touching Social Security and Medicare, even though, as we know, entitlements make up roughly half the federal budget. Oh, wow. So no easy solutions there. And what about funding for war fighting in Ukraine and Israel? Any, any agreement there? Not really. 54% of Republicans say that they would send money to Israel, but only 31% of them want to fund Ukraine. On the flip side, too, there's a Democrat support aid for Ukraine, but less than half support funding for Israel. And of course, this comes on the heels of Ukrainian President Zelensky trying to lobby lawmakers in Washington yesterday. But finding agreement here is not going to be easy. I mean, we heard Republican senators very skeptical of even Zelensky's visit. Well, yeah, that's an understatement. All right, Domenico, thank you. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. For more on this poll out today, you can read Domenico's analysis on NPR.org. All right, we now know the aftermath of a congressional hearing on campus speech. The president of Harvard will keep her job, receiving resounding support from the university. The head of the University of Pennsylvania is out. Lawmaker Elise Stefanik had pressed Liz McGill on whether an extreme statement would violate university codes of conduct. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision. The absence of a yes or no answer appears to have been a factor in McGill's resignation. Ted Mitchell is following all of this. He is president of the American Council on Education, which weighs in on these matters. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Steve. What does this episode reveal about the rules for speech on campus as opposed to anywhere else? Yeah, it's a it's it, it's certainly a moment. Um, I think that free speech is certainly one of the pillars of higher education. It's a, a one of the most important areas of uh, academic discourse and academic freedom. But more importantly, free speech is one of the ways in which colleges and universities encourage um, students, uh, whatever age or stripe, uh, um, to confront ideas that they're not comfortable with and to confront people who may have very different points of view. That's an important part of education. On the other side, uh, there is uh, the um, Title VI mandate to create a safe uh, and equitable non-discriminatory environment. So those two things have always been in tension. And I think we're seeing that tension playing out in real time today. It seems to me, if I can interpret a little bit here, Republicans were pressing on this in a political context, in a House hearing for a variety of reasons. But one of them was to point out what they see as hypocrisy. A lot of elite universities have embraced the idea that doesn't seem very consistent with free speech, the idea that speech is literally violence and that if someone says something that bothers a particular group of people, they should be actively punished. And then at least Stefanik is essentially saying, why aren't you doing that in this particular context? Is it fair to say that there is a double standard or some hypocrisy here? Well, I think it's it's uh, not exactly a double standard. Uh, I think that people are very comfortable with free speech as long as they agree with the speech itself. I think it becomes very difficult for people to support free speech when that uh, feels like it is running counter to deeply held beliefs. 
And I think that that, uh, that back and forth happens on the left, it happens on the right, and we've, we've seen that over the last several years on college campuses in America. And Steve, I want to, I want to emphasize, I, there are guardrails, and certainly there is speech that pushes up against those guardrails, and institutions have to be protective of their, of their students' safety. On the other hand, this is part of what we expect from our higher education system, is we expect uh, the raucous confrontation between different idea sets to help people really learn and challenge themselves. I'm going to ask you a hard, perhaps unfair question, but you're the expert here, so maybe you'll have an assessment. What if you were in that congressional hearing and asked that question just a little bit differently? Should something like calling for the genocide of Jews be against a university's code of conduct, and can it legally be against the code of conduct? Yeah, uh, and I'm, I don't want to reproduce the, reproduce the hearing, Steve, um, but I think that the, the, the place to start with, with an answer to that is uh, yes. Uh, and then uh, it becomes more complicated in, um, in the adjudication, in the details, in the gathering of facts and evidence. Um, but I think that on, on its face, uh, statements uh, supporting genocide uh, are uh, themselves um, very, very harmful. And then I guess you have to follow up when you say everything else, the details. It's how do you approach that? How do you punish it or address it, given that there is a First Amendment in this country? That is the, the issue that, that universities face? Exactly so. And again, going back to the to the gen, my general sense uh, th that over time, this has been a tension between these two things. And it's um, there are lots of attempts, and speech codes are one of them, to create clear, bright, permanent lines. Uh, and um, historically, they've just never worked. Uh, this is just something that needs to be a tension that needs to be managed, not a problem that needs to be solved. Is there a pendulum here that universities were really going after uh, a lot of speech a few years ago and now things are beginning to free up again? I think that that's right. I, I think that there's always a pendulum. It swings back and forth. It's very sensitive to whatever the social issues are, whether those are abortion and uh, uh, pro-life, whether those are the Dobbs decision, whether uh, that's uh, civil rights or um, going back even even uh, f uh, farther, uh, the whole issue of uh, who gets to go to colleges and universities. So we're bellwethers. There's no doubt about that. If you had a couple of seconds to answer this, do you feel that, that students and universities generally are getting a wide range of ideas, exposed to a wide range of ideas? I do, and I think that the, the discourse today on Palestine and Israel is evidence of that. Ted Mitchell is president of the American Council on Education. Thanks for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. An event once called the Super Bowl of video games is gone for good after two decades. We're talking about the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or E3. Year after year, journalists once packed the Los Angeles Convention Center for a peek at the industry's latest and greatest innovations, products like one of the best-selling handheld consoles. DS not only changes Nintendo, it changes our industry. E3 would also offer a preview to the latest games like God of War for the PlayStation. I am hungry. <laughs> Gleave Adams, who hosts the podcast Spawn on Me, is grieving those moments. E3 for me was an aspirational goal. It was a thing that you would check off a bucket list if you got a chance to attend and get a chance to go. He got that chance in 2015. It was one of those moments when I got that first badge to be able to say that I was going to attend. That was like the first marker of you as a person in this industry who's looking to kind of plant your flag and make a name for yourself. 
Adams returned to the showcase multiple times over the years. You could feel the weight of the room because of the pageantry, because of all of these folks across, you know, the gaming industry kind of knowing something big was going to happen. That was how it felt until competing events and the pandemic drained the energy. And now, for E3, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, it's game over. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, and a move that many are calling historic, negotiators at the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. Some of the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change, though, are worried about loopholes in the agreement. It's 819. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at NewArtCenter.org. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. Thoughtforms-corp.com at mitsloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash legacy. A new technology might someday be able to help people have genetically related children. More on the issues it raises and the couples it could benefit on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR. Clouds move in throughout the day today. We'll have a high in the low 40s along with some gusty winds. Mostly clear in mid-20s tonight, then sunny tomorrow with highs in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. This is NPR. 
On a Wednesday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Hospitals are supposed to be safe places of healing. But over two months of war between Israel and Hamas, a disturbing cascade of images has surfaced where doctors and patients are in constant crisis and under siege. Despite the fact that international humanitarian law is written to protect health care in wartime, attacks on medical systems have reached record highs. NPR's Ari Daniel has more. In Gaza, health care has been entangled in the war, fighting in and around hospitals. Doctors and their patients have been killed. The dust hasn't even begun to settle, so it's hard to know yet which attacks have been intentional, which ones could have been avoided. But elsewhere, in other conflicts, the picture is more clear, and it's dark, the intentional targeting of hospitals and medical staff. Take Syria. During that country's ongoing nearly 13-year civil war, hundreds of deaths have been caused by attacks on health care. Mohammed al-Abdullah directs the Syria Justice and Accountability Center. Let me see. Um, I'll use the 2013 example. Al-Abdullah says that just outside the city of Idlib, Syrian government forces opened fire on a group of opposition fighters. But the government attack on the rebels, it didn't stop there. They knew they were being treated in a hospital in the area, and they decided to follow them to that hospital. And when they got to the hospital, the government forces attacked again, going after combatants, those treating them, family members, other civilians. Al-Abdullah's group published an account of this attack that they reconstructed from Syrian government documents. He says this military technique of attacking an enemy twice in rapid succession, it has a name, the double-tap strike. It's just scary. It's horrifying. Double-tap became a regular part of the Syrian government's strategy. Mark Garlesco has served as a UN war crimes investigator. He specializes in civilian harm. And he says healthcare has often gotten caught up in conflict. But in Syria, the attacks on hospitals were wanton and intentional. Look, I've been in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and Syria was just something at a different level when it came to attacks on medical facilities. Under international law, hospitals and medical personnel are supposed to be protected and placed on no-strike lists. But in Syria, Garlasco and his colleagues suspected. The Syrian and Russian governments put medical facilities on the strike list. A chilling example appeared to take place in 2017, when Syrian government forces attacked the town of Khan Shaikun with sarin gas, a nerve agent. Tonight, outrage over these scenes of horror and suffering in Syria. An apparent war crime. This is an excerpt from an ABC News report at the time. It shows people writhing on the ground, many of them children, struggling to breathe. These are some of the young ones who survived being sprayed off, hosed down, after warplanes dropped what appeared to be a toxic gas. What happened next, says Mark Garlasco, is that Russia, Syria's ally, conducted airstrikes on the medical facilities where people were being taken for treatment. And so it was this systematic level of targeting uh, in Syria that so struck me. Garlasco says this tag team approach was deadly. Over time, doctors and nurses set up makeshift hospitals in basements, even caves. But Garlasco says the Russians hit these subterranean hospitals as well, with deep earth penetrating weapons. The bomb just burrows down into the ground and then it explodes. They can shake the earth badly enough that it collapses ceilings, stairways, the entryway. 
It's pretty nasty. And in a different war, a thousand miles away. The Russians had taken what they had learned in Syria and they were applying it in Ukraine so that when people were killed, when military forces were hit, those people could not then get medical treatment. And according to a new case study, in some instances, Ukrainians can only get health care if they change their nationality to Russian. Contrary to international law, they are misusing access to health care as a tool for controlling the population. Sam Zarifi is the executive director of Physicians for Human Rights. When he considers attacks on healthcare around the world in Sudan, in Cameroon, in Afghanistan, and on and on, he uses the word grim. And now. Panic and bloodshed in Gaza's Shifa hospital this morning. As families sheltered here, they were caught up in the battles between Israeli forces and Hamas fighters, with deadly results. This is from an earlier BBC report. Attacks on healthcare in this latest conflict go back to day one. According to the group Physicians for Human Rights Israel, on October 7th, Hamas attacked an Israeli emergency clinic, killing a paramedic and physician. A little more than a week later, three rockets struck a medical center in the Israeli city of Ashkelon. We saw attacks by Hamas on healthcare facilities and healthcare workers. And of course, in the response by Israel, the hospitals have become really a flashpoint. Israel has accused Hamas of using medical facilities for military purposes. Hamas has rejected these assertions. Meanwhile, hospitals and their personnel in Gaza have come under steady Israeli attack. The WHO says it's documented more than 200 attacks on healthcare there, and at least 60 in Israel. Zarifi worries that both sides are wrecking health infrastructure in the name of their cause. And, he says, at a pace beyond anything he and his colleagues have seen. Ari Daniel, NPR News. We're also following some news out of Israel and Gaza this morning. This comes from Israeli media, and it involves an ambush of Israeli troops. According to these reports, Palestinian militants attacked Israeli troops in a dense Gaza City neighborhood and killed at least nine Israeli troops. Hamas is putting up resistance in areas that Israel has isolated and pounded with airstrikes for more than nine weeks. And of course, the air and ground offensive has resulted in the deaths of more than 18,000 Palestinians, mostly, though not all civilians, since the October 7th attack by Hamas that triggered the war, killing more than 1,200 Israelis. Again, nine Israeli troops killed in an ambush today. We'll bring you more as we learn it. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. We'll hear about a new program at Merrimack College that seeks to address Massachusetts's teacher shortage. It's 8.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. And the ICA. Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The UN Climate Summit in Dubai wrapped up today with delegates agreeing the world needs to shift away from fossil fuels. Questions remain on how soon and how to pay for the transition. Sultan Ahmed al-Jabber presided over the COP28 climate talks. It is a plan that is led by the science. It is built on common ground. It is strengthened by full inclusivity, and it is reinforced by collaboration. He was speaking at the summit earlier today following more than two weeks of discussions. President Biden was critical of Israel yesterday when speaking of the Israeli military's response to the deadly attack by Hamas on October 7th. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the president's off-camera remarks to a group of campaign donors in Washington. Biden is reiterating that Israel still has the right to go after Hamas, and he's emphasizing that. But he's also saying as long as it follows the rules of war and that they try to protect civilians. And he emphasized that the U.S. and Europe still have the support or are supporting Israel. But Biden said, quote, they're starting to lose that support by the indiscriminate bombing that takes place. And that's the end of the quote. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu has officially endorsed Nikki Haley in the Republican presidential primary. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the two appeared together at a campaign event last night. At a raucous rally at a ski resort, Sununu called Haley a fresh face who could move past the nonsense and drama of former President Trump. We're just going to say a polite thank you for your service, Mr. President. We're moving on. The endorsement could help Haley build momentum in New Hampshire, where polls suggest she's become the leading alternative to Trump, who still holds a commanding lead. To go and get endorsed by the live free or die governor is about as rock solid of an endorsement as we could hope for. Sununu promised to campaign hard for Haley in the weeks ahead. He's also said in the past that if Trump ends up winning the nomination, he'll vote for him in 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Nearly 4,000 criminal cases delayed during the pandemic are still awaiting trial in Massachusetts. That number is about half of those initially delayed from the COVID-19 emergency. State court officials say the backlog mostly consists of cases that were not suitable to proceed over Zoom. Massachusetts education officials are looking for new ways to give money to child care centers, especially those that work with low-income families. Right now, subsidies vary by region, despite costs being mostly the same across the state. A new proposal would use specific data like housing costs and staffing numbers to set those rates. Officials tell the Boston Globe they hope the changes will encourage child care centers to accept more low-income children. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Celtics beat the Cleveland Cavaliers last night at the Garden. The final was 120-113. to The two teams will play again here in Boston tomorrow. The Bruins will be in New Jersey tonight to skate with the Devils. It'll slowly grow overcast today and there'll be some gusty winds. Highs will be in the low 40s. Skies will be mostly clear tonight as temperatures fall to the mid-20s. Sunny tomorrow with highs only in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're at WB. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. For the first time ever, the international body responsible for dealing with the rapidly warming world has acknowledged the overriding cause of climate change is fossil fuels. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. The agreement comes at the end of more than two weeks of contentious negotiations at the United Nations Climate Conference. NPR's Nathan Rott has been in Dubai covering this summit, and he is with us now. Hello. Good morning. You know, there's a lot to get through, but let's start with this first ever mention of fossil fuels in the agreement. It seems remarkable that they've been at this for so long, and this is the first time. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to how effective the fossil fuel industry has been at for decades at blocking climate action. And frankly, Michelle, how important fossil fuel production remains to so many of the world's biggest economies. And you've been reporting on this for the last two weeks. So you saw this in you saw this in Dubai as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw some of the world's most fossil fuel dependent countries, you know, pushed by industry, chiefly the oil cartel OPEC basically saying they would not agree to any language at this conference that called for the phasing out of fossil fuels. And that was something that climate advocates and vulnerable countries really wanted to see here, and they continue to want to see. Uh, You just heard COP's president, Sultan Al-Jaber, from the UAE say that there were no objections to this decision before that applause, but that was not entirely true. Uh, One of the first speakers after him was Anne Rasmussen from Samoa. We didn't want to interrupt the um, standing ovation when we came into the room, but we are a little confused about what happened. It seems that you just gaveled the decisions and the small island developing states were not in the room. Then she went on to say that this agreement is filled with loopholes and ignores the science, which says strong reductions in fossil fuel emissions are needed soon if we're going to limit global warming. Uh, And it's worth mentioning here that her comments, those got the longest applause of any speaker in this plenary. So so what did this agreement accomplish? It accomplished a lot of things, right? It, it called on countries. It does not compel them because none of this is legally binding, but it calls on them to transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, it calls for a tripling of renewable energies by 2030 and a doubling of energy efficiency. Uh, it directs countries to strengthen their pledges to reduce climate warming emissions by next year's COP, which will be in Azerbaijan. Uh, and it made a bunch of commitments, many of which advocates say don't go nearly far enough uh, to help developing countries adapt to the climate change that they're already experiencing. Well, that seems like an important point because it seems that we are seeing, you know, worsening extreme events like wildfires, droughts, hurricanes, and other climate effects every year. Where will this put the world in addressing climate change? So, so far, the world has agreed to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, That's the limit, scientists say, where climate change and its effects are still, like, somewhat manageable. And so far, we've already warmed the planet by 1.2 degrees Celsius since pre-industrial times. Uh, Here's what Simon Steele, the head of the UN Convention on Climate Change, said after today's announcement. We're currently headed for just under 3 degrees This still equates to mass human suffering. 
And so that is why Steele says these goals, these things that countries are being called upon to do, really need to be carried out in the years to come. And we need to see stronger pledges uh, as this keeps going. That is NPR's Nathan Rott on the conclusion of the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai. Nate, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Alabama plans to use nitrogen gas to execute a death row prisoner in January. It's the second time the state has tried to execute Kenneth Smith, and this method of execution has never been used in the United States. A document obtained by NPR has found that Alabama's Department of Corrections cannot guarantee the safety of witnesses during the execution. Our investigative reporter Kiara Eisner is in the studio to share more on this. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Welcome. Thanks for coming by. What have you learned? So I spoke with a spiritual advisor of Alabama death row prisoner Kenneth Smith. His name is Reverend Jeff Hood. Hood shared a document with me that was essentially a waiver from the Department of Corrections acknowledging that he could be in danger by being close to Smith when they administer the nitrogen gas. And he would be close to Smith during the actual execution as a spiritual advisor? He'd be standing right there? He'd be standing right there. He'd be in the room. Okay, so how would it be that he would be endangered by the execution itself? Smith will have a mask on, and that's how they're going to give him the gas. That mask could detach, and the gas could get to other people in the room that way. Hmm. This document that he signed says that even if Smith's mask stays on, gas could still leak above Smith's head. So Hood had to agree to stay at least three feet away from the gas. But nitrogen gas is odorless, and it's invisible. So experts told me that rule would be pretty hard to follow, and it could be difficult for anyone else in the room to even know they're being exposed. An anesthesiologist I spoke with, Dr. Joel Zivit, said people exposed to nitrogen gas like that could start to hyperventilate. And that severe hyperventilation you know, can lead to a stroke. So there is some injury that could happen to you, you know, as just being in the proximity of that, it's all very concerning. They're not being realistic about what exactly is at stake here. And your reporting tells us Alabama knows this is a risk. That's why they're making Hood sign this waiver form. Is the spiritual advisor, Reverend Hood, okay with that? Well, he told me he signed the form under duress because it was the only way he felt he'd be allowed to be there with Smith and do his job. He's preparing for the worst. Here he is. When I first got in touch with Kenny, one of the first things that he asked me was, are you prepared to die to be my spiritual advisor? And it's something that I've definitely had to meditate and pray on and just cling to a real knowledge that greater love hath no one than this than they who would give their life for their friend. He was quoting scripture there, and there's also a question of whether this could violate the religious liberty of both men. Hood has been a minister during multiple other executions in Alabama and other states. And in those cases, he needed to be close to inmates to anoint them with oil and administer last rites. But he says that won't be possible here if he has to stay three feet away for safety reasons. What's Alabama saying? I asked them for comment. I haven't heard back from them yet. Two weeks ago, I tried to get this document directly from them, along with any others that workers might have signed. But the Department of Corrections responded then that it would be, quote, detrimental to the public interest. And they did not release those forms to me. The agency does say on the form that they believe gas escaping would be highly unlikely and there will be gas monitors in the room. What are you hearing from the prisoner, Kenneth Smith? He called me from the prison in Alabama last week. And I should say the state has already tried to execute him once before by lethal injection. Last year, he was on the gurney for four hours as they tried to find a vein. I'm still carrying trauma from the last time. So everybody 
basically telling me that I'm going to suffer. So I'm absolutely terrified. The execution is scheduled for January 25th, and Reverend Hood is planning to be there regardless. And Bureau's Kiara Eisner, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. This is NPR News. A few communities in Massachusetts are considering overdose prevention centers, even though they are illegal. Friends and families are already monitoring drug use in secret to keep loved ones alive. We'll take you to one such home today on Radio Boston. Listen at 11 on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the business behind high-profile year-end lists of the most popular artists of the year. Windy in low 40s today under increasingly cloudy skies. Tonight, those skies slowly clear and temperatures will be in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, sunny in mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com. And the law firm of Nutter McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century, client-focused, collaborative. This is Nutter, online at nutter.com. There are important deadlines to keep in mind this week if you're planning to send holiday packages to people outside of New England. As WBUR's Stevie Chapman explains, ground shipping is one of the least expensive ways to ensure your gifts arrive in time for Christmas. Today is the deadline for economy ground shipping through FedEx. The UPS deadline varies by location. You'll have until Saturday if shipping with the United States Postal Service. Steve Doherty is a Boston-based communication specialist for USPS. He's reminding people to have the proper packing materials on hand. Julie Andrews may be a big fan of brown paper packages tied up with string, but we prefer a good solid box with packing tape on it. You want to make sure it's packed properly so that it gets to its destination in one piece. Express and priority shipping options have deadlines as late as December 22nd. Those are more expensive, and there's no promise your gift will arrive on time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. Cambridge-based Santa Fe is terminating plans to exclusively license a treatment developed by the California drug maker Maze Therapeutics. The decision follows objections from the Federal Trade Commission. The drug treats a rare genetic disorder that causes weakness in the heart and bones. Regulators said the Santa Fe deal would create a monopoly for the disease's treatment. It's 845. WBUR supporters include Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings, Gather Around, Let's Feast, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, kf.org. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. School districts across Massachusetts need qualified special education teachers. Many paraprofessionals have years of classroom experience, and experts say they make good candidates for future educators. But the path to getting licensed can be tricky. 
WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo visited one district helping paraprofessionals make the jump. Room 109 hums with the sound of busy kids. These early learners at Pentucket Lake Elementary in Haverhill zigzag between activities. One student jumps on a trampoline, another runs his fingers through a bin of sand. Among the adults in charge, it's hard to tell who the teacher is. That's because they're all teaching, including Tiffany Ramos. What are you making? Can you say sandcastle? Sandcastle. You gotta push it, pack it down. Whoa, whoa. Ramos is a paraprofessional. That means she helps with anything from making Xerox copies to working one-on-one with students under the guidance of their classroom teacher. The kids in Room 109 are nonverbal, and many of them benefit from this kind of individual attention. We basically just try to see what they can attend to and for how long, and sometimes that's just a few minutes, but then the next day we'll try and shoot for a few minutes more than that. After several years as a paraprofessional, Ramos knew she wanted to become a special education teacher. She liked the idea of having more responsibility and higher pay. But obligations at home and at work pushed that goal to the back burner. Her story isn't unusual. For many paraprofessionals in Massachusetts, the process to become a licensed special education teacher is tough. Basic teacher certification in Massachusetts requires a bachelor's degree and a passing score on licensure exams. But special education instructors also need to demonstrate they can modify curriculum for students with individualized education plans, or IEPs. This requires additional coursework, which can be time-consuming and costly for many paraprofessionals, says Deborah Margolis, dean of the Winston School of Education and Social Policy at Merrimack College. Now you're five or six years into it. Maybe you have a family. Maybe you have have an apartment or a mortgage or, or something. And you can no longer just sort of step out and say, okay, I'm putting everything on hold and I'm just going to focus on me. Going back to school can cost thousands of dollars. Licensure exams alone are roughly $100 a test, and most people need to pass more than one. The typical paraprofessional in Haverhill makes just under $30,000 a year, so these costs can quickly eat into their budgets. But for Ramos, finances were not the only barrier. So was energy. Her job can be draining. Paraprofessionals have a way of referring to particularly tough days. Just putting out fires. <laughs> putting out fires all day. By fires, she means student behaviors, like running out of the room if they're triggered. Experts say licensure requirements can inadvertently prevent those who are prepared from entering the profession at a time when the state needs more special education teachers. And with over 27,000 paraprofessionals working in classrooms across Massachusetts, the pool of potential talent is large. Ritu Chopra is the executive director of the Paraprofessional Research and Resource Center. She says paraprofessionals tend to make the kind of teachers district leaders hope to attract. They have experience. They know what special education looks like. They are already immersed in the culture of the school, culture of the community, and in the instruction process. Some Massachusetts education leaders agree. And this year, a new collaboration is helping paraprofessionals make this jump in their careers. Merrimack College has partnered with the Haverhill School District to help paraprofessionals navigate the licensure process. The college offers teacher prep courses in the evenings and on weekends, and many are online. At the end of two years, participants earn a master's degree in a high-needs field like special education. Best of all, the program is tuition-free. Tiffany Ramos is part of this initial cohort. She says while it's still a challenge to take care of her young daughter, report to her job, and complete student teaching hours— 
the program makes it easier. You know, the teachers are really understanding because they know you're in a school all day working. So if you reach out, like, I need a little extra time for this assignment, like, they're very flexible. Merrimack is looking to partner with even more school districts down the road. That way, more paraprofessionals like Ramos can become highly trained educators in their communities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily piper Valillo. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on calls for a humanitarian ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The U.S. voted against a U.N. resolution on the matter yesterday. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Exploring, understanding, and protecting our ocean starts with you. Help support advances in ocean science and technology for the global good. Discover how you can make a difference. More at whoi.edu slash join. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The COP28 climate summit in Dubai has wrapped up with an agreement that calls on nations to transition away from fossil fuels. The House will vote today to finalize the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And Tesla is recalling nearly all of its vehicles sold in the U.S. to fix a defect meant to ensure drivers are paying attention while using the autopilot function. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. It'll slowly grow overcast today and temperatures will rise to the low 40s. It's 41 degrees in Boston. There is a global agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. And by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on think or swim. More at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio. The U.N. Climate Summit has wrapped up in Dubai a day later than expected with what many see as an historic achievement. Countries have agreed on language that says the world has to shift away from fossil fuels. Marketplace's Nova Safo reports. Up until this climate summit held at oil-producing United Arab Emirates, countries have danced around two key words. Here's COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber. We have language on fossil fuel in our final agreement for the first time ever. Indications that this was going to happen brought opposition from Saudi Arabia and OPEC. The final deal does not call for a phase-out of fossil fuels, as many countries wanted, but transitioning away from their use. It's a compromise deal. The fact that that happened at all is significant. Tom Ribbett Karnak is one of the architects of the Paris Climate Accord. The fact that it happened in a fossil fuel producing country is potentially remarkable. 
Now the focus will be on what actions countries actually take to implement the non-binding agreement. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Environmental activist and former Vice President Al Gore, who had blasted an earlier version of the agreement, welcomed this one, although he noted loopholes and half-measures that he said shows the influence of petrostates. Meanwhile, here in 2023, there's record pumping of crude oil over 13 million barrels every day. This and slower growth in China are among reasons oil prices are down going into this winter. Crude oil's below $70 a barrel this morning, around its lowest of the year. This even as OPEC countries try to trim production to prop up prices. Longtime energy economist Philip Verlegger is a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that global oil demand is shrinking. So prices likely may fall in the future. Given those circumstances, the smart strategy is to boost production and get the oil out as fast as possible. That's what's happening. Another force here are mergers and acquisitions with $100 billion in oil deals this year involving the shale oil from West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. The big global oil companies are more likely to pump when the math looks right rather than unofficially towing OPEC's line. What has happened is large companies like Exxon and Chevron are moving in and Exxon and Chevron look at prices and say, if the prices justify increasing production, we'll increase production. AAA says it's 313 a gallon on average right now, lowest of the year at the gas pumps. The Federal Reserve will brief the country on the economy and inflation in just about five hours, but very likely will not change interest rates. Markets S&P futures are up a tenth percent, NASDAQ futures up two tenths percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 Generative AI. Verified, traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at c3.ai. And by Financially Inclined, a podcast from Marketplace is all about money lessons for living life your own way. Listen to the new season wherever you get your podcasts. Music streaming platforms are rolling out their annual data on who got played the most. Apple Music Replay and Spotify Wrapped have these data sets. TikTok's got a version. Let's take a closer look with Dan Runcie. He's founder of Trapital, an industry publication that tracks business trends in music and beyond. Dan, great to reconnect. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So top of both Apple and Spotify's list is a recognizable name here, Taylor Swift. I mean, we know why. Huge year. She released her latest studio album, Midnights, at the end of 2022, which had tons of room to have plenty of streams in 2023. But then she also re-released two very popular albums of hers in 2023, plus the massive tour and the records that it broke, plus the drama and all of the things that happened with Ticketmaster as well, plus the celebrity relationships. So it's no surprise that she's at the top of this list and also named Times Person of the Year and several other accolades. As you look throughout the lists a little bit further down, do you see the influence of social media platforms? Definitely. And there's a few things that stick out with these lists because you also have the TikTok list as well. And while TikTok isn't a traditional streaming service like the other two, it still is a source where a lot of music discovery happens. And if you are a listener that's in the U.S., then you'll see a lot of representation by SZA. Morgan Wallen. 
Last night we let the liquor talk. I can't remember it. If you're a user that's in Latin America, you likely saw much more from Bad Bunny or Peso Pluma or Carol G and artists like that. You mentioned Morgan Wallen of country music fame, most listened to song of the year, Apple Music, but over on Spotify, most streamed is Flowers by Miley Cyrus. What accounts for that, do you think? Country music itself, while it's grown its popularity across the globe, it still is a genre that is most popular in the US and on a platform like Apple Music, Apple Music is much more centered around the users that are in the U.S., just considering the adoption with the iPhone, but they don't necessarily have the same level of penetration when you look everywhere else in the globe. Now, we should spare a thought for wonderful artists who aren't such big names trying to get some attention on these streaming services. You know, they don't earn that much from these streaming services, do they? No, and there's been a few changes that they've made with certain rules that have happened where Spotify had announced that they now have a minimum threshold of a thousand streams in a year in order to start generating revenue from the services. And this is something that does affect a majority of the artists on these platforms, just considering how many artists have ever put out any type of music on Spotify. There's a number of vested interests that want to see things continue to grow, but as things slow down, we're seeing a bit more debates around how best to split the current pie. Dan Renzies, the founder of Trapital, which covers business trends in music, media, and entertainment. Thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Increasingly cloudy today. It'll be windy and in the low 40s, clearing skies tonight in the mid-20s. Sunny tomorrow with temperatures only rising to the mid-30s. It's 41 degrees in Boston and the BBC at NewsHour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, photography from the Black Atlantic. This compelling compilation of works explores Black identity, community, and power. Closes December 31st. More at PEM.org. I'm Robin Young. When chef, author Clancy Miller first entered the food world, she knew very little about other black women who preceded her. Now in her For the Culture, she tells their stories. Lena Richard had a television show, a cooking show, more than a decade before Julia Child. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.